We began a new series last week, as Rob said, in uh, this Old Testament book of Esther. And last week we learned, first of all, that this is a brilliant story. It is the story of a dramatic, unexpected, totally unexpected turnaround. The people of God at this time in history are living as a vulnerable minority in a powerful pagan empire, and they face a crisis at this point worse than coronavirus. They're about to be completely wiped out by a brutal, state-sponsored genocide. If we think things are bad, this was worse. I'm sorry if you don't know the story, that's a spoiler. We won't get to this until chapter 3, but this is where the story's going. Through the vicious hatred of one man and the passive weakness of a stupid king, God's people are on the brink of annihilation. Well, they will be next week. This incredible story is about how God turned the tables and saved his people from the jaws of certain death. But incredibly, it doesn't mention God anywhere at all in the book. So this is a book that is inviting us, in a sense, to marvel at the hidden, sovereign hand of God in human affairs and how he brings his good plans to fruition, even in the face and complexity of human mistakes and complexity. So we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get into the crisis in chapter 3. The first two chapters are like the start of a game of chess. The pieces are being put on the board. The game's about to start. This is an introduction. And um, last week, we took a top-down approach in chapter one. We were thinking about the kind of world that God's people live within. And uh, we saw that this is a powerful and impressive, but also fragile an almost comical empire. We were thinking about that last week. In chapter 2, I want to take a kind of bottom-up approach. So we're going to be introduced to some of the key characters that are crucial to the plot. Um, But we're asking the question this week, not what is the empire like, but what did it feel like to live in this empire? So it's a slightly different question this week. And you'll see on the programme there, I want to highlight three things about that from chapter 2. So, to live as the people of God in the empire of this world is to feel, first of all, deeply vulnerable. At the start of chapter 2, four years have passed since the king banished his previous queen. Her name was Vashti. And in a drunken rage... He had banished her, sacked her as the the queen. But Vashti saying no to the king in chapter 1 was just the first in a series of what we might call unfortunate events for King Xerxes. In this intervening period of four years, um, let me put another heading up for you here. First of all, 
a brooding and depressed king. In the meantime, Xerxes has been trying unsuccessfully to conquer Greece. His massive army apparently outnumbered the Greek army by possibly 10 to 1. But the Greeks were a lot smarter than Xerxes was. This invasion included a very famous battle. If you've ever seen the film, it's a weird film, the film 300, about the Spartans who tried to resist the Persian attack. There's a famous battle called the Battle of Thermopylae. And uh, this is exactly what happened. Xerxes tried to invade Greece and uh, the outcome was a disaster and a humiliation for him. It depleted his wealth. It embarrassed him in the eyes of his subjects. His godlike status was diminished. His own confidence badly dented. And all the, if you were here last week, all the grand showing off that he did last week has come to nothing. His planning, his strategy, his strength and his nerve had all failed in this intervening period. I wonder whether chapter 2 begins with a hint of regret. Subtly as well, does the king have second thoughts here? When King Xerxes' fury had subsided, it says that he remembered Vashti and what she'd done and what he had decreed about her. She's not there to comfort him now in his despair and he knows that there's no going back. I want you to imagine for a moment living in the court of this king. He's lost a battle. Historians describe Xerxes at this point as a brooding and overindulgent man. He had affairs with the wives of his senior military officers, which ultimately made them so angry that he was assassinated in his bed a few years later. It would be like walking on eggshells, wouldn't it? Not knowing when his rage was going to erupt or his depression was going to take a nasty turn. The court know that this king needs somehow lifting out of his depressive misery. And one of them comes up with a bright idea. Oh, king, this is no time for regrets. They're trying to cheer him up. And we've seen how easily led this king. In this book, this king virtually never makes a decision himself. In chapter one, his advisors pandered to his sense of a lack of respect and led him to banish his queen, who apparently he loved. In this chapter, they pander to his desire for women. And what they suggest is an appalling abuse of power. Just look with me at verse 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed... I wonder who came up with this. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm. Remember, this is a big empire. To bring all these beautiful young women into the harem 
at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king. And he followed it. I've wondered if this advice appealed to the king as a kind of revenge. If he feels at this point that somehow the empire is laughing at him. He's going to assert his authority. Get his own back by bringing every pretty young woman in the empire. Not just to his palace but to his bed. That would show everyone in the empire that he still had it. Another expression of power. It seems clear that this is not just a beauty parade. This is not just an episode of Miss Persia. This is a sex competition. The woman who pleases the king the most will replace Vashti as the queen of Persia. This is therefore a competition with no choice You didn't enter this competition or apply. There's no application form. If you were pretty, you were entered. And estimates vary as to how many young girls this might have involved. From a few hundred to a couple of thousand. And just think for a minute of all the young women in this empire who are suddenly forced to say goodbye to their families, to their friends, maybe even to their boyfriends or fiancés. This this is basically human trafficking, kidnap and rape sponsored by the state. It's made clear in verse 12 to 14 that the king spares no expense in these young women being prepared for their encounter with him. Um, it's, it's extravagant and lavish, both in its time scale and, and, and in what they do. For 12 months, each woman was subject to extensive beauty treatments under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Haggai, Maybe it lasted for a year to make sure that none of these girls were pregnant. I don't know. One, one commentator as well notes, I thought this was quite amusing. One commentator notes that the, the Hebrew word for beauty treatment is, is, a, is a kind of word that implies scrubbing or scouring, which, which made me think that this was 12 months of like exfoliation treatment. But it's not just exfoliation, it involves all kinds of aromatic lotions and Persian perfumes. It's like an extended spa day in lush, you know, the the smells for 12 months. Or maybe for these women it felt like how an animal feels being fattened up for the slaughter. These women endure the agony 
of waiting in a long queue to spend one night with the king. When the time came for them to go into the king, they were allowed to choose whatever perfume or makeup or lingerie that they wanted to take with them. But in verse 14, we realise that this harem is actually split into two sections. There's a section for the new models and there's a section for the used models. So when a girl went in to see the king for one night, when she came back, she didn't go back to where the preparations all took place. She went back into another section to wait After their one night, they would never go back to the king unless he summoned them by name. This is a totally different kind of waiting. (coughs) A few hundred women all competing for one chance to impress the king. And if you didn't make the grade, you would never go home. You'd never marry or have a family, you would live like a widow in the seclusion of this luxurious harem for the rest of your life. All of this to satisfy the bruised ego of a depressed king. The point of all of this is to say that in this world, in this empire, the fate of people who live within it is not decided by justice or fairness, but by the personal agendas of the powerful who can use people for their own selfish ends. The people of God in this empire are therefore deeply vulnerable. This is where they live. And this is the atmosphere that Esther is forcibly dragged into. I think the author, in a sense, is showing us the odds. The odds, what are the chances? That's the question to ask as we read this chapter. What are the chances of Esther surviving this, let alone winning this competition? The odds are stacked against her and against the people of God. So there's number one. They're deeply vulnerable. Number two, I want to suggest that God's people living in this empire are also morally conflicted. There's lots of hints here in this chapter, so let's try and break it down. I I can't remember, maybe three or four things to highlight here. First of all, I want to suggest that the way they're introduced here hints at the tension that they're constantly living with every day. Verses 5 to 7 are, in some ways, an interruption in the narrative. Um, We're we're told what the king is planning to do after this advice of his senior um, counsellors. And then from verse 8, we're we're told what happens. Verse 8 carries on from verse 4. But verse 5 to 7 are an introduction as we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, who are essentially the main characters in this story. 
Perhaps the main point of this little detour is the emphasis on Esther being very beautiful. Because having learned that the king is planning this sex competition, we, the fact that she's very beautiful, we, we know where, where that's going. But there's a lot more going on here in these verses too. Verse 5 sounds pretty harmless to us. But to a Jewish person, it would sound like someone scratching a blackboard. Or, or what, what kind of sound is like horrible? This verse would jar. I, I, th- I think we could easily skip over this. First of all, in verse 5, we're told that there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa. So this, this is not just someone living in the city. Picture this. This is someone living in the citadel inside the city. This implies that Mordecai is some kind of junior civil servant. For him to be in the citadel, not just in the city, he's working for the government in some official capacity here. We also know, though, that the Jews as a nation were scrupulous in being set apart from other nations. Their food laws, their religious observance set them apart distinctively as the people of God. But there's no hint here of Mordecai standing out. And worse still is his name. The name Mordecai later became a very popular Jewish name because Mordecai ends up being one of the heroes in the story. But this name is originally a Persian name that's derived from the Babylonian main god, Marduk. So here's a, guy, here's a Jewish guy who's been born in exile and named by his parents after a pagan god. Is that a sign of them trying to fit in and assimilate? His presence here as a civil servant working for the king of Persia is a shock because at the very least he's hiding his true identity as a Jewish man. When we're introduced to his cousin, or I should say as well, there's a little bit of family tree stuff there. Just, we'll, we'll come back to that next week because what it says about his family background is very relevant to the crisis that escalates in chapter three. So just store that away in the back of your mind. But when we're introduced to his cousin, um, Esther, we find something similar. She has two names. She has a Jewish one, Hadassah. And a Persian one, Esther, we could talk about what those names mean. But the, the main point here is the sexual tension in this chapter is very significant. Esther here is drawn into a contest that will end with her sleeping with a pagan king. She ends up basically marrying a Gentile. And this is important for a Jew... That was completely forbidden. It was written into their law not to intermarry with non-Jews. Some Jews went back to Jerusalem after the exile here. You, you may know this. In the book of Nehemiah, when the Jews go back to Jerusalem, some of them marry local Gentiles. And Nehemiah actually goes out into the street and starts beating up his fellow Jews because he feels so strongly that they're not keeping themselves pure. I wonder what Nehemiah would have made of Mordecai working for the Persian king 
and sending his cousin into the palace to participate in a sex competition. I, I, I think he would have gone further than just beating them up in the street. This is a big tension. We're highlighting this. These two individuals are experiencing what we might call an identity crisis. They have a foot in two camps. Are they still Jewish or are they slowly becoming Persian? So the tension they live with. Secondly, the suffering they've experienced. It's quite striking that Mordecai is introduced first as a way of then introducing Esther. This clearly means that they're both important to the plot and we'll see that. But it also tells us something about their relationship and their past. The end of verse 7 tells us that although Mordecai and Esther are cousins, he had adopted her as his own daughter when her parents had both died. And that he had br- he's effectively brought her up. So Esther is an orphan. I, I think their relationship seems a sweet one too. In verse 11, we get a glimpse of Mordecai's fatherly care as Esther is forcibly taken into this competition we're told that every day Mordecai paced up and down near the palace to see if he could find out news of how Esther's doing he, he cares for her later on in verse 20 the author also speaks of Esther's respect for him even after becoming the queen of Persia, we're told that she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions just as she had done when he was bringing her up. You, you get the sense here of a very sweet and affectionate relationship, but we also begin to see that th- these are two people that have experienced traumas together. Not only are they in exile, but they've known bereavement. And now Esther is forcibly taken into a kind of captivity within a captivity. One one really poignant thing that struck me was as Esther completes her own beauty treatment and the time comes for her to spend one night with the king as she begins her own slow walk from the harem to the king's chambers. Just look at how she's described in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail. At this very moment, when she is at her most vulnerable, the author mentions by name her dad, who she's lost. Isn't that poignant? I wonder if she makes that walk. She's thinking of her dad and her mum, 
who she's lost. This is a woman who's experiencing a milestone of deep emotions. Thirdly, the fear they feel. I think their secrecy hints at the fear they feel. In verse 10, we're taught, the author tells us, Esther had not revealed her nationality or her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. When you get into the palace, don't tell anyone. Don't tell them that you're a Jew. Don't tell them you're related to me. Just keep your head down. Don't say anything. And that's repeat. it's important to the plot. This Actually, it's repeated in verse 20. Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality. Interesting that it swaps around there. Just as Mordecai told her to do. It's very interesting. It's crucial to the plot. The king doesn't know that Mordecai or Esther are Jewish. And he doesn't know that they're related to each other. We're not told why Mordecai gives this advice, but it just serves to ramp up the tension, doesn't it? No one can know who these people really are. If they're discovered, it seems like they'll suffer for it. They're in danger, and it looks like they're keeping their heads down to avoid conflict. So the fear, lastly, the was for the compromises they seem to make. I think this is more than hinted at by the author's complete silence about their motives. So, some commentators in history have given Mordecai and Esther a very hard time. Condemned them strongly for being weak and compromised. So, let me read you a quote. There's a, this is a 15th century Jewish commentator. His name is Abraham Sahar. Oh, sorry, Sabar. My eyes, small print. This is what he said in the 15th century. Now, when Mordecai heard the king's herald announcing that whoever had a daughter or a sister should bring her to the king to have intercourse with an uncircumcised heathen, why did he not risk his life to take her to some deserted place to hide until the danger would pass? He should have been killed rather than submit to such an act. Why did Mordecai not keep righteous Esther from idol worship? Why was he not more careful? Where was his righteousness, his piety and his valour? And Esther too should by right have tried to commit suicide before allowing herself to have intercourse with Xerxes. Jewish commentator, 15th century. What are they playing at? It's like... In other words, he's suggesting that their compromise in this situation is terrible. They are very unlike the parents of Moses, who defied Pharaoh and hid the baby Moses in a basket. They're not at all like Daniel who in the court of Nebuchadnezzar refused to eat the king's food. This Jewish commentator thinks that Mordecai should have risked his life to say no, and that Esther should have committed suicide before sleeping with the Xerxes. The striking thing in this chapter is that the author makes no comment on how Mordecai and Esther feel 
about any of this. So, on the one hand, the language is very passive. In verse 8, Esther is taken and entrusted and moved and assigned. All of these verbs are things that happen to her. Things are being done to her. She's not in charge of any of it. We get the sense that they are both victims who have no choice. But, on the other hand, when Esther gets into the palace, she seems all action. She immediately wins the favour of Haggai. He's so impressed that he moves her into the five-star penthouse suite. He gives her seven maids to look after her. He gives her the best beauty treatment and the best food. At the end of verse 15, we're told that Esther, in fact, pleased everyone who saw her. And when her turn came to go to the king... Rather than try to impress him with some novel idea, she simply asks Haggai for his best advice and then she follows it to the letter. It seems to me almost as if she wins the king's heart by being relaxed and confident and not trying too hard rather than appearing nervous or desperate the remarkable thing is that Esther captivates Xerxes in one encounter. He was more attracted to her than to any of the other women. And she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. Rather than sending Esther back to the harem for used models... He immediately crowns her queen. He's a man of emotional extremes, this guy. In chapter one, we see him in uncontrollable rage. Here we see him celebrating with unrestrained joy. He sounds a bit bipolar, I don't know. (laughs) Interestingly, he throws another banquet, Esther's banquet. The last banquet in chapter one ended in disaster. Here the the king proclaims holidays, he hands out tax breaks, so that everyone in the empire is pleased and excited that this secret Jewish orphan girl is now their queen. The point is that having been dragged into this brutal contest, perhaps against her will, Esther is then very much portrayed as being in control of her fate. She doesn't sound like a victim who's cowering or trembling. You kind of get the sense that she's relishing this process. She plays to win. At no point is there a word of protest, either beforehand or during this competition. What do you think? Honestly, what do you think? Is Mordecai wise or being cowardly? And what about Esther? What do, what do you think? Perhaps she hated every minute of every day. Maybe this violated every truth she stood for and she felt ashamed of what she was forced to do. The author doesn't say. Perhaps she loved it and was swept along, caught up 
in the attention of powerful men and luxurious surroundings. Isn't it striking that the author says nothing, nothing to praise them or condemn them? He deliberately doesn't flatten these characters into villains or heroes. He tells it as it is. And I think when we put it all together, the messiness and ambiguity is very true to life. As we read this chapter, can can you see reflected here something of your own tensions, scars, fears, compromises? Somehow we sense that there's more going on than meets the eye, though, don't we? Let's just uh, very quickly and briefly touch on a third thing. Just this little epilogue in chapter two about Mordecai. To live as a people of God in the empire of the world is to feel unfairly forgotten. We find Mordecai at some point, while Esther is queen, sitting at the king's gate. There's some archaeological evidence uh, been discovered over the last 200 years for this being a huge complex a massive hall supported by pillars with side rooms and people would come here to do business and prepare to have an audience with the king in the palace chambers this is where Mordecai worked so we're reminded here that he's some kind of junior civil servant and while he's there he just happens to overhear a plot to assassinate the king. This is a very real threat. We've said already he was eventually murdered in his own bed by his prime minister. Mordecai is both loyal to the king and full of concern for Esther. I think he realises that if, Esther, if the king's like, it's not going to end well for Esther either, is it? So he gets a message to Esther, who then in turn tells the king... She gives full credit to Mordecai without saying that she's been brought up by him. The matter is investigated properly and it's proven to be true and the culprits are slowly impaled on wooden spikes. I mean, I read about that process. It's not nice. It's not nice at all. Um... This episode, we're told, and the chapter ends with this, is very carefully recorded in the official books of, of, in, the, in the presence of the king. It, it's very significant that there's no reward or promotion for Mordecai here. Apparently, Persian kings were renowned for their lavish rewards when things like this happened. This guy's just saved his life. So it seems like a surprising oversight, but store that coincidence away too, because it's crucial to the plot as it unfolds. So, the author here has introduced us to the main characters and set the scene for the crisis that begins in chapter 3. These are just two of God's people in this pagan empire, deeply vulnerable, morally conflicted, and one of them is unfairly forgotten 
And yet, somehow, by the end of this chapter, Esther is the queen, and Mordecai's name is in the official record as a guy who's just saved the king's life. Let me try and draw all this together for us. I think this story invites us, again, it's an invitation. The, the, the author never tells us what to think, but he's drawing us to marvel here at, at least three things. First of all, the mystery of God's providence. When we talk about the providence of God, we are talking about God being the sovereign king over all human affairs. Sometimes I like playing snooker. And as a total amateur, I get excited if I put more than two or three balls on the bounce. You know, if you put three on the trot, you know, you're doing quite well. The key to the game is the positional play and being able to control the white ball, the cue ball where it ends up because you've got to plan the next shot and you've got to make the cue ball stop so you can make a nice break. Even though God is not mentioned at all in this book, I want to say to you that his positional play is absolutely exceptional. <laughs> there are now two people exactly where God has planned for them to be who will turn this story inside out and be the means of saving the people of God from annihilation. And I've called this a mystery deliberately because it is impossible for us to fully know how the plans and purposes of God interact with the choices of many individual people who are all acting in their own self-interest. No one made Xerxes show off and then banish Vashti in chapter 1. No one made him attack Greece and come back with his tail between his legs. No one made him oversee an abusive sex competition. No one made Mordecai and Esther respond in the way that they did, whether that was right or wrong. No one made two officials plan to assassinate the king and who could have predicted that Mordecai would be in just the right place at just the right time to overhear such a plot? The mystery is that through all of these human choices, sorrows, relationships, intrigue, apparent coincidences, the living God who rules over all is putting the cue ball exactly where he wants it. No one can ruin his game plan. He's on a big break. <laughs> Friends, what this means is that what feels like a disaster to us is not a surprise to God. And what might look like a defeat to us never sends God into an anxious tailspin. In this story, and in all stories, God is in control. Secondly, the comfort 
of God's grace. We've noted already that the author definitely does not present Mordecai and Esther as role models to emulate or as bad examples to shun. What, what parent would tell their daughter to do what Esther did? Some of you have got daughters. Make yourself beautiful and try to sleep with powerful men to get ahead in life. Who, who would give their daughter that advice? What is utterly staggering here, though, is that this trauma, their trauma, is part of the story. Mordecai and Esther are caught up in this powerful mythology of this ancient empire. Xerxes is like a mini-god. There's an air of inevitability about what they do, because how can anyone resist this godlike power? But at the same time, their story, I think, recognises the reality and power of our suffering in this world. Even at this very moment, now, in 2020, the illusion that we're in control is being shattered by coronavirus. We're vulnerable to disease and death that shows no favouritism. We live in a wider world that's terribly complex and often violent. For some of us, we, we have recollections of childhoods that have been fraught with scars of shame or loneliness. And sometimes on top of our own traumas, we experience the pain of watching those we love suffer. This empire has about it an air of inevitability and Mordecai and Esther are wounded. But isn't it true that often our wounds are the things that send us searching for meaning for solutions, we pour ourselves into our work, thinking that success might heal us. Or we pour ourselves into our social lives, thinking that esteem and affirmation from other people might bring us healing. We numb ourselves with food or drink or entertainment or sex. Perhaps Esther's two names are not just a symbol of her compromise, but they're also a symbol of her scars. She has lost her parents, her homeland, her freedom, and, and she seems to have lost her way as one of God's people. Do you think that these people were tempted to think that they'd blown it? Or that God had blown it? Life is too hard. We've made too many mistakes. Friends, this story should be a massive encouragement. Because it shows us not just that God is in control, but that he is also kind. In Esther... One writer says, we see a person who is compromised and in need of repentance. 
and traumatised and in need of healing. If that is true, this story is an even deeper story of God's grace than we think it is. God here can use people who are hardened by rebellion and he can use people who are crushed by it too. And in Mordecai, we we see God overruling injustice. Sometimes life isn't fair. Things don't turn out the way they should. Maybe we're overlooked or forgotten. This story reminds us that God is working out the details. And it frees us to be patient and calm. Rather than bitter and anxious. Like them, we are responsible to live faithfully and obediently. But isn't it a comfort to know that even when we make a wrong turn, either through ignorance or through deliberate disobedience, or even when people or circumstances seem to conspire against us and disappoint us, Isn't it an encouragement that God is able to use even the weak links in perfecting his plans in us and through us? Thirdly, the certainty of God's promise. The the backdrop, the real backdrop to this story is that God himself, centuries earlier, had entered into a covenant relationship with his people And here is evidence that despite them being in exile, he has not forgotten that promise. In his great faithfulness, he is still at work to fulfil his promise to preserve them and protect them here from oblivion. And nothing can thwart God's purpose to save a people for himself. God here is not at the mercy of unpredictable events. He's not struggling to keep up. He's not backed into a corner. He's not placed into some ethical dilemma that ties his hands behind his back. He is the Lord who loves his precious people and his plans and purposes for them. And by extension, therefore, for you are the plans that will prevail. Sometimes we love to feel that we're in control of our lives and other times we're caught up in circumstances that are way beyond what we planned. This story reminds us of God patiently and graciously working to bring his purposes to fruition. And he does it even even through the apparent coincidences of life and dubious human decisions and even evil intentions. Let me close by just pulling this little triangle together around the cross of Jesus Because actually, the cross is the pinnacle of God's providence in human affairs. 
his gracious kindness to people who have messed up and it reveals to us something of the certainty of God's promise to save a people for himself I, I entitled this talk A Wounded and Compromised People Jesus is better than that though because although he too was vulnerable and wounded and we might even say unfairly forgotten he was never morally conflicted or compromised there's no dubious decisions or mixed motives in him he came into the world to be our saviour and in terms of God's providence mysterious providence it is significant that no one made Judas betray Christ no one made Peter deny him no one made Pilate or Herod hand Jesus over to be crucified like a criminal no one made the Jewish leaders plot to kill him all these people were all acting in ignorance and with their own self-interest in mind and yet through all of that intrigue and even hatred God was working his plans out not in spite of these things but through these things to save a people for himself through the death of his son on a Roman cross so when Peter preached publicly in Jerusalem shortly after the resurrection he said this to all of them imagine this for a sermon this is just a few weeks after the resurrection you he says to his hearers, you disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked that a murderer be released to you instead of him. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. You did it. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. And then Peter says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In other words, Peter saying, Humans intended it for evil. But God had already planned it all for good. Here's the ultimate triangle of God's amazing positional play. The security of his eternal promise and his gracious dealing with people who got it wrong. Peter's point is not, you, you could easily misunderstand this. Peter's point is not that it doesn't matter what you do because it'll all work out well in the end. Peter's great call and the invitation, I think, of the book of Esther is for his hearers to turn from themselves and turn to this gracious God who sovereignly rules over all things graciously to 
to save a people for himself and to find in him forgiveness and healing and refreshment.